My first introduction into officially and formally serving a Christian church was through music. My mom uh, led the music of our church growing up. And so from a very young age, we were a small church and she needed a lot of help. And so from a very young age, they forced me to learn how to play the guitar. And uh, I'm not upset with them for that. And then I also was joining choirs throughout my school so that I could learn to sing. While all my other friends were doing wood, you know, workshops and learning how to cut and glue wood and learning automobile basics, I was in choir singing. Uh, But it blessed me because I was able to help my mom and bless the church, which had an even greater impact on me because music was also my door into official vocational ministry with the church. Uh, The first time I ever got a job, formally speaking, working for a church uh, was primarily to be the, what they call a worship leader, to lead the music at church. And so because of my history with music, uh, it means a lot to me. I have a lot of opinions about church music, but all of my experience in the church has told me that everyone else does too. I am definitely not alone. Everybody seems to have a pretty strong opinion about church music. Which songs should we sing? Should they be hymns? Should we do only hymns? Should we do contemporary? Should we sing only the psalms? And whichever songs we sing, how should we sing them? Should they be a cappella? Should they be humble? Should we have a band? Should it be loud? Should it be quiet? It seems that everyone has an opinion. And unfortunately, these opinions run so hot that in my experience, at least in sort of the evangelical, sort of baptistic world, Uh, There are few things that split and divide churches like not being able to agree on music. Either resisting change or resisting to change, there's something that everybody is doing that causes fights and bickering and splits. And so the question is, does the Bible give us any guidance at all about our church music? Does the Bible help us in these disputes? Does the Bible say anything about church music? music. Would you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20. Ephesians chapter 5, 15 through 20. We are continuing in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians, and today we get to talk about church music. When you have gotten there, I would invite you please to stand for the reading of God's Word. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 20, Thus saith the Lord, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This bars the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. So as we have been working through this chapter, Paul begins by continuing yet again to exhort us to holy living. That's been basically what all of chapter 4 and chapter 5 has been about so far, an exhortation to holy living. And here he frames holy living under the guise of wisdom. You're never living unwise if you're living holy. Wise living is 
holy living. And so he calls us to live wisely and to discern the will of the Lord, especially in light of the fact that we are but mere creatures. He tells us in these first couple verses, he reminds us that our time on earth is limited. We are a vapor in the wind. We are a blink of an eye. And when we put it in that perspective, when we remember just how valuable time is to our short, feeble human lives, does it not compel us to even more make the right use of the time? We just don't have enough time, so let us spend it seeking the will of the Lord. And that is holy living. And then Paul transitions now from this very broad call to live wisely and to live holy And he transitions to a very, very specific example of what wise and holy living might look like. And it's singing. He transitions us to song. Singing singing songs in church as a form of worship is a crucial way for us to live holy and wise lives. And so in turn, as Paul turns our attention to singing, what we find, the benefit that we have, is that he's going to give us some very basic yet very helpful principles to guide us in our attempt to discern the will of the Lord, specifically as it pertains to the songs that we sing, as it pertains to our church music. What is God's will for the music ministry of Redeemer Christian Fellowship? And Paul gives us the basics, and I'm going to frame these the way basics often are framed in terms of the ABCs, right? You talk about the ABCs of this, the ABCs of that. So this you can think of as the ABCs of church music. Very basic principles, the ABCs of church music, but we're even going to get a bonus letter. We're not just going to get ABC, but we're even going to get letter D. It's, uh, that, this one will be for free. You can thank the Apostle Paul. A, B, C, and D basics of our church music. So let's begin with A. Our song should be affective. Our song should be affective. Not effective with an E. Affective with an A. Now that's not an incredibly common word, so let me define it. When something is affective, then it is relating to, arising from, or influencing feelings or emotions. Something that influences emotions or something that comes from emotions is affective. If our songs are going to be affective, then they need to come from our emotions or they need to influence our emotions. By the way, this is the same root where we get the word affections. Do you have affections, affective, affections? You see the connection there. In short, our songs should move us emotionally. We want to be emotionally moved by the songs that we sing. Now, given the context of the people in this room, this may not be the case if I were to preach it in a different church setting, but I'm willing to guess that given most people in this room's background, this might have actually be a controversial point of opinion for you. Because as we live in the context of this ever-growing, shallow, emotional, performance-driven evangelicalism, Emotions have kind of become a bad word for us. When we think emotions, we think of these big megachurch silliness, or we think of these really, really out-of-the-ordinary charismatic practices. And so we've sort of come to define emotions as a bad thing. It's a bad thing to be emotional in church, to feel something in church. 
But this is uh, not at all true. In other words, with this first point, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make sure that we do not overcorrect to the silliness around us. We have to be careful. We see some of these things existing on the extremes. We have to be careful not to overcorrect and start to define pious and reverential worship as emotionless, stiff, and lifeless worship. Our worship should not be emotionless. It should not be stiff. It should not be lifeless. Now, where am I getting all this from? Am I reading this into the passage? Well, I'm getting this from three different places in the passage. I want to show you all three of them. The first one is in verse 18, where we are told to our songs are to come from the Spirit, from the filling of the Spirit. Look at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And then in 19, what do we do? What, what happens when we're filled with the Spirit? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. You see, our worship music should be from the influence of the Spirit. In other words, you need to come to church every Sunday prepared to sing under the influence I like to make the joke, you know, in Colorado, I don't know, I think here they call them DWIs. But in Colorado, if you drink and drive, you get a DUI, driving under the influence. If you wanted to make this cheesy, you need to come to church every Sunday, being prepared for the pastor to hand you a ticket for a WUI, worshiping under the influence. We need to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit as we sing our songs. Our songs need to come from the Spirit within us. And notice what Paul recommends spirit-filled singing to be an antidote to. He makes this odd comparison in the text. What does spirit-filled singing, what void is it replacing in our life? Our desire to be drunk, right? He says in verse 18, do not get drunk with wine, but instead what? Sing spirit-filled songs, Paul is, to some degree, making a comparison between being under the influence of drugs and alcohol and being under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And if you think that, whoa, 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 pastor, you are on the border of heresy right now, let me just remind you that it is a common thing in Scripture for people operating under the Spirit to be accused of drunkenness. Do you remember a long time ago, we did our First Samuel sermon series and right at the beginning of First Samuel, when Hannah is begging God for a child, she goes to the temple and she's emotional. She's praying and she's weeping and she's crying and she's so emotional that Eli the priest finds her and what does he think has happened? She's gotten drunk in the temple and he rebukes her for being drunk and she has to tell him, I'm not drinking, I'm under the influence of the Spirit. An even a more common example is at Pentecost. Right after the Spirit falls upon the apostles, right after Pentecost, they immediately break out to the festival and they start preaching in tongues. And what are they accused of? The crowd accuses them of being drunk. And Peter has to say, I think it's so funny in Acts chapter 2, Peter has to say, brothers, it's 9 a.m. That's literally, that's what he says. He goes, it's 9 a.m. We're not drunk. Well, we are drunk. Just not with alcohol, not with drugs. We're drunk in the Spirit. We have been filled with the Spirit. So apparently there is some kind of very, very loose connection between being under the influence of the Spirit and being under the influence of drugs and alcohol. Now let me put a brakes on this. 
The relationship here is not one of hysterics and disorderliness. In other words, I am not saying that whenever someone is under the influence of the Spirit, they should act like drunkards. There actually is, by the way, a small faction of Christians who teach this, and their, their worship services are emotional. People are slurring and stumbling and falling, and they're hysterical. There's even some who will go so far to talk about how you can get high on the Spirit, and they will pretend to smoke the Holy Spirit, and then they will act like they're high. This is utter blasphemy. And by the way, it's utterly contrary to exactly what Paul says. Paul says in verse 18, do not be drunk because it leads to what? Debauchery. Drunkenness leads to disorderly living, living without constraints. That's what drugs and alcohol do. They remove your moral inhibitions. They take away the little parts inside of you that say, this is inappropriate. This is disorderly. They remove that. And so there are people here who will take a text like this and think that you're not allowed to make alcohol make you disorderly. You should let the spirit make you disorderly. But that's exactly opposite of what Paul's saying. So he's not saying we are to act like drunkards. Quite the opposite, what does being under the influence of the Spirit lead to? Not to disorderly conduct, not to debauchery, but to singing praises, to thankfulness. And we didn't read it because we're going to talk more about it next week, but in verse 21, to submission. (laughs) Being under the influence of the Spirit leads to quite orderly, controlled, emotional, and obedient experiences, not debauchery. So please don't hear me saying that we need to act like drunkards when we come into church because we're under the influence of the Spirit. No, we're not to live and worship recklessly. So what is then the relationship? Well, here's how I think Paul is understanding it. The general relationship between the influence of the Spirit and the influence of drugs and alcohol is that in both of these scenarios, there are external forces which are capable of influencing our emotions and our thoughts. Drugs and alcohol have the ability to influence your emotions and influence your thoughts, and so does the Holy Spirit. He can influence your emotions. He can influence your thoughts. So let me give an example from alcohol, right? Alcohol, I like to refer to it sometimes as synthetic joy. It's artificial joy. There are two primary reasons why people will abuse alcohol. And in both scenarios, it's typically to create happiness. They're either depressed They're sad and depressed and lonely and they hate their lives, so they drink and they drink and drink. Why? Because during that short period of time when they're drinking, they don't feel so bad. It it gives them a happiness that they can't find. But not not everyone drinks their depression away. Some people just drink because they're looking to have a good time. But what does that mean? That means that even though we're already together and happy, we, we can't break that next level. So we, we, we're already happy, but we want to be happier. We're already having a good time. We want to have a better time. So what do we do? We go out drinking. But you see, in both of these extremes, what is alcohol doing? It's saying, your life isn't that great, but I can make it better. You're having good, I can help you have more fun. You're really depressed, I can help that go away. Alcohol is a synthetic joy. It influences our feelings and our emotions and our thoughts And for a temporary time, it brings us into a really happy place. But Paul tells us that it will ultimately lead to other things, debauchery and self-destruction. So the comparison here is your life might be hard, but there is a way to overcome your circumstances and you don't have to look in, in a bottle or a glass for it. The same spirit 
can influence your emotions, and you can learn to be content, you can learn to be thankful, you can learn to be joyful, no matter the season you're in. The Spirit helps you overcome your circumstances. Are you depressed? Are you sad? Are you lonely? Sing songs. Change your depression. Change your emotional state by singing. Are you happy already? Are you joyful? Sing songs. Become more joyful. Express your joyfulness. You see how it really is operating in a very similar fashion to drugs and alcohol. By the way, uh, the book of James picks up on this latter example. Jesse, I'm sorry, I know you paused it, but I, I have a couple of verses for you so you don't have to turn there. Notice what James 5.13 says. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. In the secular world, hey, we're having a good time. Let's go drinking. In the Christian world, hey, we're having a good time. Let's go sing. Sing praise. Express your joy. Express your thankfulness. But here's the problem for some of our more stiff backgrounds. Cheerfulness is an emotion. Thanksgiving is an emotion. It's something you feel. When we sing songs, we're supposed to feel. We're supposed to feel. We also get, however, the idea that spirit-filled singing is going to include, to a heavy degree, our emotional state from verse 19. What does Paul say in verse 19? I don't have this on the screen. This is just back to your Bible. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. When you sing, what are you singing with? Are you singing with your mouth? Yeah, technically. Are you singing with your vocal cords? Yeah, technically. But if that's the only place your song is coming from, you're in disobedience. You are not worshiping God by just coming in and mouthing the words to the songs. Where are the songs coming from? They're not coming from your mouth. They're not coming from your vocal cords. They're coming from your heart. They're coming from the deep, the deepest part of who we are. They're coming from this chair inside of us that the Holy Spirit sits upon. In the Bible, the, the expression heart is supposed to encompass your entire humanity. Your deepest humanity, your thoughts and your passions, your emotions, your desires. Our songs come from our emotions. They come from our hearts. They don't just come from our lips. And by the way, this all makes sense yet again because Paul immediately transitions to telling us one of the emotions that we should sing from. In verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our song should express our thankfulness. And again, thankfulness is an emotion. Brothers and sisters, can I challenge you? Can I challenge you? Have you been bringing your hearts into our songs or do you just bring your voices? Do you allow yourselves to be moved by the songs that we sing? There's a comedic satire news site. So it's a fake news. It's not real. It's just comedy. It's just a joke. Uh, it's called the Babylon Bee. I love the Babylon Bee. I think the Babylon Bee is so funny. The Babylon Bee in the later edition has become quite political, and I'm okay with that. But when the Babylon Bee first started, it wasn't nearly as political. And what the Babylon Bee was, it kind of just poked fun at Christian culture. And it, it was an equal opportunity offender. It didn't matter if you were reformed or not reformed, charismatic or not charismatic, Lutheran, whatever it was, they were willing to make fun of everybody. 
And one of my favorite articles they ever posted, uh, a very, very early one on in their, uh, right from the the get-go, is they posted an article that the headline said something about a news report that the motion detector lights continually turn off in the middle of a Presbyterian church's worship. They're trying to worship, but the motion detector lights keep turning off. What are they poking at? What, what's, what's the stereotype? And unfortunately, it's, it's, it's largely accurate in Reformed churches. What are they poking at? We check our hearts at the door when we come to church. We're, we bring our brains. We're ready to learn. We're ready to study. But we check our hearts at the door. Brothers and sisters, can I remind you, heaven is not going to be an emotionless state. You are not going to, on the day of resurrection, sing to Christ like this, All glory be to Christ our God and King who is so good. That's not heaven. We sing from our hearts. I want to encourage us to bring our hearts into worship. In other words, let me give you pastoral permission to feel something. It's okay to smile. It's it's okay, I dare even say, it's okay to cry. It's okay for the glory and the majesty and the beauty of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to affect you. One last example before we move on. Just look at how Psalm 149 puts it. Here's your commandment. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in the Lord. Let them sing for joy on their beds. God is too good and the gospel is too glorious for stiff and lifeless worship. Bring your heart. Sing from the Spirit. Sing from your hearts. Our song should be effective. But letter B, back moving on in our basics, our song should also be biblical. Our song should be biblical. Look again with me at verse 19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. When we sing in church, who are we singing to? Who's, who's the, the object in front of us that we're singing to? And yes, the answer is God. The text at the very end says we sing and make melody to the Lord. We sing to Christ. We sing to God. But there's another group that we're singing to. We don't just sing to one person. Who is it that we sing to? Verse 19, addressing one another. Music is defined by Paul. Church music is defined by Paul more like a conversation than a performance. I'm singing to you, and you're singing to me. We're addressing each other. When we sing, I'm trying to teach you something. When we sing, you're trying to tell me something. You have something I need to hear, and you're telling me through the song we address one another. And so if we're going to be addressing one another, if we're going to be communicating Christian truths to each other, don't you think it matters that these things are true? Don't you think it matters that these things are supported in Scripture, the things that we're teaching each other? Because that's what it means to address one another. It means to teach each other and to admonish one another. 
And if you think, well, no, that you're, you're reading into that word too much, I'm not, because the Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians basically rewrote this chapter almost word for word, but he tweaked it just a little bit. And look at what he says in the book of Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What does it specifically mean when we address one another with our songs? It means we're in, we're in the process of teaching the Bible to each other. We're admonishing each other to holiness. So our songs are not just expressions of our emotions. They are that. They are expressions of praise to God. But they're actually instructional tools. Uh, I used to live next door to the Hartman's grandchildren. And their homeschooling curriculum... Uh, is, is really robust. And one day the kids came up to me and said, I can basically tell you the entire history of the world. I said, wow, that's a pretty amazing feat. Okay, why don't you tell me world history then? And they, in a matter of like three minutes, basically shared with me every major historical development to our world, basically from the time of creation to the advent of Christ. And you want to know how they remembered all of these amazing details? They sang it to me. They were taught, they were able to memorize and remember all of these facts because it was put to song, because songs are easy to memorize. Another example, at my last church, they had a really awesome children's program. It was a Bible verse memorization program. And you'd get all these kids and they would memorize these verses and then they'd go off to competitions and they'd have to recite verses in front of hundreds of people. It was really quite a, an amazing way to get our children to memorize the Word of God and put it in their hearts. And so one of the things we were encouraged as a church to do was when you see the quizzers, that's what we called them, uh, to keep them on their toes, if you just see them, just randomly ask them for their verse of the week. Ask them to recite it to you. And so we have these really, really young kids who have like 50 Bible verses memorized just off the top of their head. And I'd go up to them and I'd say, you know, no real names. You know, Charlie, Becca, tell me, what's your verse? And you know what they would almost do every time? They'd sing it to me. Do you want to know how they memorized all these verses? By putting them to song. Singing, melodies, rhyme schemes, they help things stick. More often than not, the songs that we sing on Sunday are going to stick with you into the week more than the sermon will. When we, if for some reason we ever find ourselves in an incredibly persecuted country and you are, and I are imprisoned in a jail cell without our Bibles one day, it's going to be really hard for us to recite sermon lines to each other. But you know what we're going to be able to do together? We're going to sing. Singing is a crucial way for our hearts and our minds to memorize, meditate upon, and learn the truths of Scripture. We address one another, we teach and admonish. Let me just give some examples of teaching and admonishing. We just sang in the lyrics, see the true and better Adam come to save the hellbound man. In that lyric, we are reminding each other of the truth of Romans chapter 5, where Paul calls Christ the new Adam. Adam was a righteous man who failed his covenant and then damned humanity. Christ came as the new righteous head of humanity who fulfilled the covenant and saved humanity. He's the new and better Adam. It's an important truth, the typology between Christ and Adam. And you get to remember that truth every time we sing, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. You get to meditate about the fact that Christ is the new Adam. He's the new head of humanity. You remembered that because we sang about it. We're, after the sermon, we're going to sing another hymn. And in this, we're going to say these lyrics. 
Lamb of God for sinners wounded, sacrificed to cancel guilt. None shall ever be confounded who on him their hope have built. So what are you learning in that song? That Jesus is the Lamb of God, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrificial system. And you remember that his sacrifice cancels your guilt. The cross of Christ has forgiven you of your sins and that if you put your hope in him, you will never be cast out. You are learning and remembering the gospel because we made it rhyme. By the way, we not only teach true doctrine, we even admonish one another. We do that. It sounds kind of harsh, but we do that in our songs. For example, from the same hymn that we're about to sing, we're going to read these words, sing these words. Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. What are we saying in that? We're saying that anyone in this room who doesn't think highly enough of their sin, our song is admonishing you, look at the cross. You think your sin's not a big deal? Look at the cross and see how, how much of a big deal it is to God. See how, see how much of a big deal God thinks of your sin. If you stumbled upon this in this room this morning and you forgot just how wicked your sins are, we're going to have a song to admonish you and say, knock that off. Your sins matter. View them through the cross. We admonish one another, but sometimes our admonishments and our songs are not so harsh. Sometimes we're just beckoning each other to worship. For example, from Come behold, but every single verse of that song is admonishing you to come and worship. Stop whatever it is you're doing and come behold the wondrous mystery. Come behold the lamb upon the tree. Come behold the resurrected Christ. Behold our king. Behold our savior. That's an admonishment. Come and worship him. We're, t- we're talking to each other. I'm not telling God to come behold the wondrous mystery. I'm telling you to come behold the wondrous mystery. We're addressing one another, admonishing one another, teaching one another. And so that's why our songs need to be biblical. They need to be filled with biblical theology. This is one of the great errors of contemporary worship music. Not all of it, but generally speaking, contemporary worship songs lack any substance worth teaching. They are filled with therapeutic self-help lingo, and then the name of God is just kind of sprinkled in over the top. But there is hardly ever any doctrine worth remembering in a lot of the CCM bestsellers. There's almost no biblical theology at all. And by the way, if those are the songs we give to people, it says a lot about our church. There's a theologian, ironically, I disagree with this scholar on many, many important things. But he said one thing that him and I are in great agreement with. A a scholar named Gordon Fee, he said this, Show me a church's songs and I'll show you their theology. I've come from a lot of churches in the past who they thought, we'll sing fun, silly, shallow songs just as an attempt to get the lost in. We'll even sing secular music just so it gets the lost in, but then then we'll hit them with the doctrine. Then we'll hit them with the Bible. And what you'll find out in that strategy, it never lasts. When the songs get shallow, the sermons get shallow too. It never lasts. It never works. Sing secular music, sing shallow music, but then give them the gospel. You know what almost happens? The gospel becomes entirely removed from that church because the entire mindset is just keeping people here. Our songs are a reflection of what we believe and what we teach. Layla has a friend from Japan. She met a while ago, and this friend wanted to learn English. And so she learned English by starting to listening to American music. 
She just listened to these songs and she would learn English. And by the grace and providence of God, she just so happened to pick up gospel music. So just to learn English, she started listening to gospel songs. And guess what ended up happening to this young girl? She's a citizen in the kingdom of heaven with you and me. And you want to know why? Because the gospel was taught and proclaimed clearly and biblically in the songs that she sang. I have to lament the fact that if in God's providence she would have happened to instead sang and picked up English from most of the modern popular radio music today, she wouldn't know a thing about the God we worship. She would know a thing about what God has done in history. All she would know is that God is up there and he loves you and you're great and he wants to help you. That's all she would know about American Christianity. She wouldn't know a thing about the Bible. She wouldn't get saved. If our songs are going to teach and admonish each other, they need to be biblical. They need to contain clear, explicit, biblical doctrine. Our songs must be effective. They must be biblical. But if we're going to sing to one another, this doesn't just require our songs be biblical. This requires they be congregational. Letter C, our songs need to be congregational. If we are addressing one another, if we're teaching and admonishing one another, then that means that we are called to sing corporately. To sing as a congregation. We participate. All of us participate together. We sing to one another. So guess what that means? For some of you, this is going to be really scary, but I'm sorry. Guess what this means? It means you're not allowed to not sing. Singing is not just a tradition that you can opt out of. It's a commandment. It's something I need. Oftentimes people come, I don't like these songs. I don't like this style, so I'm not going to sing. Or you know what? I just didn't really grow up singing. I'm not much of a singer. I've got a bad voice. The commandment is not for the good singers to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's not for the professionally trained singers to address one another in psalms and hymns. It's for every spirit-filled Christian who has something to be thankful for. Your job is to come and sing, whether you're good or not, whether you like it or not. Come and sing. This is not a talent show. It's a teaching opportunity. It's a fellowship opportunity to sing to one another. Singing needs to be congregational. And the fact that our singing needs to be congregational, that actually gives us some pretty helpful guidelines for the style of songs that we sing. There, are, there is no genre of music that is inherently sinful. There, there are genres of music I'm sure you and I don't like, but we really don't have permission to say it's inherently bad. Right? Genres of music are just things we've created. But there are genres and there are styles of music there are ways to perform certain songs that do not help the congregational aspect of worship, but actually detract from it. So they might not be inherently sinful, but they are what we would call unfitting for worship. Any song or any style of song that we bring into the church that's making the congregational nature of our singing more difficult needs to be cut out. The style of songs, the kind of songs we see, sing need to serve congregational music rather than fight against congregational music. Let me just give a couple examples, practical examples of how this might play out. This oftentimes means that it's very possible for a worship service and their songs to have too much volume. Too much volume. When we complain about music being too loud, it's not because we're grumpy old people and our ears are being hurt. When music gets too loud, when we turn the lights completely off so that you can't even see the person next to you, 
And then we crank the monitors up as loud as we can so you can't even hear the person next to you. How does that signal, how does that communicate, address one another, teach and admonish one another? You're not teaching me anything. I can't even hear you. You're not admonishing me or or addressing me. I can't even see you. When we crank the lights down and crank the volume up, what we're actually communicating is the worship team is singing to us. But we want style of music that says, no, we are all singing to each other. We are participants in this, not receivers of it. We're not watching something. We're worshiping. So we want a style of music that contributes to congregational worship music. Now, please don't hear me saying, here's what a lot of people will jump to when they hear me say that. They will jump to, so instruments must be bad. Instruments must be wrong. Sadly, a good section of our Reformed heritage fell into this error. Many in the Reformed tradition believe that we should only be singing a cappella songs with no instruments. But I maintain that this is extra-biblical. The Bible nowhere says this. And in fact, the Old Testament is replete with examples that God is to be worshipped through instruments. I have just one example, though I could find many of them, from Psalm 150. Read this with me. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And we could go on and on and on throughout the Psalms that God is glorified when we bring our instruments into worship. So there is nothing wrong with instruments. There's nothing wrong, I dare say, with an electric guitar. There's nothing wrong with a drum set. As a matter of fact, you can actually expect, as we begin to expand both the number of people in our church and the physical size of our church, Lord willing, we probably will start to add more instrumentation to our worship. And you shouldn't resist that. There's nothing wrong with instrumentation. But what there is something wrong with is when our instrumentation becomes more important than the voices of the congregation. That's when we have a problem. When the drum set is blowing out the congregation, then yeah, now we have a problem, get rid of it. If the electric guitar is blowing out the congregation, okay, now we have a problem, get rid of it. So instruments are not bad. Having a band is not bad. Old Testament Israel had a band. They had a worship team. There's nothing wrong with having a band, but there is something wrong with communicating to people that we are here to sing at you rather than that we are here to sing to one another. Another way that congregational music is enhanced is by singing songs with singable melodies. The melodies that we sing need to be singable. Whenever I listen to a song, no matter how much I love it, no matter how much it moves me, I have to ask this question. Can both my young son and my grandfather sing this song together? There's a lot of genres of music out there that I might personally enjoy. There's a lot of Christian hip-hop, a lot of Christian rap, and I used to listen to that before football games. I love listening to Christian rap. I will never bring Christian rap into worship. Is it inherently sinful? No. But I'm not sure that very many people in here can rap. I'm not sure I can rap. It's not congregational. It's not sinful, but it's not congregational. That's maybe an an extreme example, because even some of the non-rap, even some of the non, uh, even some of the more 
popular worship music today, I contend, is beautifully written for a solo performance. They're beautiful Christian songs that I love listening to, and you should listen to them. Put them on your podcast and listen to them when you run. Do whatever. Listen to them. But some of these songs, no matter how much we love them, are just too musically complicated for a congregation. I firmly believe that part of the reason why we have so many classic and ancient hymns that we still sing today is not just because of their good doctrinal component, not just because they're biblical, because these were the hymns that mastered these melodies that are singable. Who can't sing, Be thou my vision, You remember that? You sing it, we can all sing that together. We want singable melodies because it contributes to corporate singing. So, we're almost done. We've gone through our ABCs. Our worship should be effective. Our worship should be biblical. Our worship should be congregational. But Paul has thrown in one more for us. Letter D, our songs should be diverse. Look at verse 19, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart. Paul actually tells us what kinds of songs to sing, right? So if you're thinking, should we be a psalm-only church? Should we be a hymn church? Should we be a contemporary church? What should we sing? Paul tells you, you should sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. But there's a problem. We don't know what that means. (laughs) Uh, You have to be careful. It's easy for us to sort of impute our categories onto this verse, right? So like a spiritual song, 10,000 Reasons. A hymn, the old rugged cross, a psalm, you know, Psalm 1 from the songbook. These are not the categories that Paul's necessarily working with. Uh, as a matter of fact, scholars have debated these categories since it's been written. What exactly is Paul talking about? What is the difference between a psalm, a hymn, and a spiritual song? Like, what are the differences? And the answer is that we really don't know, but there is large general agreement large general agreement that what Paul is doing here is he's basically just spanning the genres. He's saying all these different kinds of singing that you're familiar with, you guys know psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, utilize them all. He's, he's telling us just, just to sing all kinds of music. He's not locking us into any one thing. We don't have to be a hymn-only church. We don't have to be a psalm-only church. Whatever kinds of songs are available to us, provided they are biblical and congregational, we can sing them. Another way of looking at it is there's not any one super century where all of the good music was written. Right? And the songs we sing today are reflected of that. We sing Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, which was written 20 years ago, within my lifetime brand new song. We also sang Be Thou My Vision, the original version being written over 1,300 years ago. The Christians who lived 1,300 years ago are producing just as good music as Christians who were born today. There's no sacred date. We can use anything that we want provided they meet the other biblical categories. Whether it's old or new doesn't matter so much as whether it's singable, biblical, congregational. Now, I will add, however, It's very difficult, and whatever Paul is saying, it's very difficult to imagine that the Psalms are not somehow in here. Whether the word Psalms means the Old Testament Psalms or not, either way, the Psalms were what God's people sang for hundreds of years. The Psalms are the only songs that you can sing and know for 100% that God is its author. The Psalms were the primary songs of the early church. So I do believe that however we understand this, 
more of us in America today need to make a better effort to incorporate biblical psalms into our worship service. And we've been doing that for the last three years. Uh, I know that we don't necessarily do it the traditional way by learning from the, like a reformed Psalter. We might do that in the future, but I just wanted us to get started the only way that I knew how. And so I found a site where we're able to sing psalms to the hymns of popular tunes. And I know that up until this point, those songs may not have become your favorites in this church. I get that. Sometimes it's kind of hard to match the lyrics to the... I understand that that might not be your favorite part of every time we sing. But I just want to encourage you, I fully convictionally believe it is a borderline sin to reject the psalms entirely from our music ministry. I just don't think that's healthy for us. And so right now, this is the way that I know how to teach us to sing psalms. That might change in the future. But I would just encourage you, even if you're not crazy about these psalms, it's really important for us to sing the psalms. It's really important for us to sing them. Certainly, I think Paul had in mind that the church, the churches would utilize and benefit from the psalms that God himself wrote. So those are the ABCs and D of church music. Our songs ought to be effective, biblical, congregational and diverse. To help you, uh, I've summarized this into one single sentence. If you're, if you're a four-point sermon kind of a person, then you've already got the sermon. But if you're more of a, I, I can't remember the acronym, just give me something to take home with me. I've got that for you on the screen. Here's how I've summarized our message today. We live wisely when we pour out our hearts to God through the corporate singing of doctrinal songs. We live wisely when we pour out our hearts to God through the corporate singing of doctrinal songs.